Hi, everyone. I'm Jason. And I'm Stephanie. And we are here today thanking you for joining us on Edible Ethics as we all get good and high together. Today, our topic is genetic enhancement. Yes, it is. But before we get to that, before we get to the good part, let's talk about the high part. Are you high? I am getting there. I had the same edibles as last time. I've had three of them now, one about 45 minutes ago and the last two about 30 minutes ago. And I have the dregs of a vape pen with some hybrid THC in it that I'll try to suck on intermittently as we move forward. What about you, Stephanie? So I took a new edible, which maybe wasn't a great idea. It it was in chocolate form, which is nice. And I was talking to the guy at the marijuana store, and he was saying, even though some of the edibles are listed as, say, indica dominant or sativa dominant. That's right. He was saying that the strain doesn't really matter with edibles. That's interesting. That you're going to kind of get the same high, regardless of the strain. I've not experienced that myself. I know. Maybe we can get some feedback as to whether this is true. I mean, he he seemed fairly confident, although he wasn't able really to explain it, maybe because I don't know that much about marijuana growing. But he was also saying, I usually, but I usually get a blend, as we've talked about. And then I also usually get one-to-one THC and CBD. Which is a really nice option if available to you. The one-to-one THC to CBD for me is a rounder, smoother high than just THC. That's yeah, exactly how he was describing it too. He drew a little pyramid for the THC experience. And then he drew a kind of a line through it, maybe a third of the way down, describing the CBD part of that. So the CBD takes you down from this kind of high peak. It just kind of keeps you, gives you this kind of level peak experience. Well, that seems to gel with my experience, but I've had indica and sativa and hybrid edibles and over, over the months and years, mm-hmm. uh, not today. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my experience with those is different. The hybrid is is sort of predictable kind of of high, and it could very well be the case that it's if it's 60/40 one way or the other, I'm not really going to notice a bit of a difference. Sure. Um, but if it's definitely a sativa edible or an indica edible, those are are quite different to me and the differences between a, a head high and a whole body high. Well, so I forego the CBD part of it this time just to make sure that maybe I would have this peak experience, as they right. say. But I'm not sure that I'm, I'm having it. And so we'll see over the course of this the yeah. episode. If I, I mean, I feel a little bit relaxed right now. I would oh, say. that's good. Which is a good thing because I have been having some super anxiety-inducing dreams recently. And so uh, today's a lucky day where in the middle of the day, I get to get high rather than having to wait till the evening with the anxiety from those dreams weighing me down all day. <laughs> oh, man. But this is um, one of the things about edibles is I usually appreciate that slow build and then the slow come down. So you, you're not really, I'm usually not really aware of exactly when I get there <laughs> or when I leave. <laughs> 
the area, <laughs> but it does make it a little bit challenging for this podcast to rely exclusively on edibles because we have to get the timing yeah, right. But nonetheless, we're going to try our best to be as high and good as possible today. Exactly. Or good and high. So the topic is, what did you say? Genetic modification? I said genetic enhancement. enhancement. I mean, okay. genetic enhancement is a subset of genetic modification. Oh, is it? How so? Explain that to me. And we're talking about modifying, we're going to focus on modifying humans. Exactly. The ethics exactly. of tinkering around with human genes. Right. So just the to make this distinction, so a genetic modification can be any number of different kinds of things. These days, the technology of choice is a genome editing technology called CRISPR-Cas9 or crispr for short. And CRISPR is a, a really interesting technology. I'm not going to get into any of the details of it today, but you can look it up, C-R-I-S-P-R, or we can put some uh, resources in the show notes. But CRISPR allows for precise changes in the genome of the individual receiving the intervention. And so yeah, I can tell I'm a little high now because I'm starting to forget the keywords. So that's <laughs> excellent. So <clears throat> a genome modification or uh, gene modification or genetic modification is any change that we can make in a genome. Whereas the subcategory of genetic enhancement, which I'll admit relies on a very tenuous dichotomy between therapy on the one hand and enhancement on the other, or a medical intervention on the one hand versus a social or personal or let's just say non-medical intervention on the other. Um, this therapy enhancement distinction isn't, uh, isn't a very good one for all kinds of reasons. So then I'm, I'm going to suggest actually that maybe we, we stay at genetic modification, the ethics of genetic modification, rather than go to the subsection genetics enhancement. I think that's a great idea, Stephanie, because the ethical issues about genetic enhancement are really just a subset of the ethical issues about genetic modification more broadly. And really, and really, at the end of the day, there aren't a whole lot of people who are super keen proponents of genetic enhancement, but there are a large number of people who are keen on genetic modification, as well as a large population that is unsure about it or opposed to it for various reasons. And it seems like that genetic enhancement as a subset of genetic modification is also a subset of enhancement ethics across the board. So we were kind of talking about this in the first episode with marijuana, whether we were ethically allowed to enhance our mood right. with marijuana rather than just correct it or enhance our body experience rather than just correct it. And this is probably going to come up a number of times in this podcast across topics because this, this ethics of enhancement seems to touch on a lot of different, say, interventions or experiences that we have as humans. Absolutely. And genetic enhancements are just a subcategory of those as well. Of that, yeah. So let's stick, let's stick with more of the genetic modification broadly, which seems to be about whether we should tinker with our genes. I, mean, I need a better word, obviously. No, tinker is actually one of the words that, that people like to use. But I think it's an appropriate one. Okay. Tinker with our genes, whether that be for correction, enhancement, experimentation. Yeah. Any purpose whatsoever. And I will say that 
already you and I have done some ethics work just in the last couple of minutes by trying to carve out the space where we want to actually constrain the ethical discussion so that we're not talking about everything under the sun. We're talking about a particular thing, but we're not talking about a too narrow particular thing that isn't all that interesting. We're sort of mapping out that part of the ethical landscape that we're going to try to traverse today. First, map out. Now, having mapped it out, focusing on, is it ever okay to tinker with our genes? And if so, under what conditions? I think that's a good question for us to start with. All right. And what I am going to do is um, just start off with a little bit of background from a Pew Research Center survey that was conducted a, a couple of years ago. There's going to be a pause here, Steph, because I'm trying to find the Pew study. <laughs> it's just going to take a second here. For some reason, it's not showing up exactly where I thought it would. So where did you go, dummy? This is going to enable you to give us the exact data that came from the study. Exactly. And it, it won't take long once I actually find it. I have no sense. I have, I have a poor sense of time anyway, so don't worry about it. Oh, great. That, that happens to me when I'm high. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't that happen to you where things get really drawn out, like songs yeah. or? Yeah, it does. Let's see if this one should be the one. Give me one second. I think I got it now. Just slide aside, you, know, you mentioned AI. Yes. Is it, it seems to me that kind of everyone was talking about genetic, genetic interventions from an ethical pr perspective and also, you know, this kind of moral panic perspective. That was the kind of dominant bioethical issue of the, of the day for many, for many days. Now it seems like it's just all AI. Like we don't, we don't really even hear about gene editing anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a good observation, Stephanie. I mean, there's always a kind of faddish um, set of technologies that um, raise public attention or raise public interest because of their potential ethical uh, implications or ethical issues associated with them. So um, since the early 90s with the start of the Human Genome Project, genetics, then genomics, now genetics, genomics, and gene editing has been one of these topics that has remained of interest for 30 odd years. And I suspect that it will remain with us uh, indefinitely. Uh, in the meantime, you know, back around 98, 99, all the attention was focused on stem cells. And then uh, in the early 2000s, there was a lot of attention focused on nanotechnology. And now, uh, more recently, uh, we've seen this large focus on artificial intelligence. It's kind of like how we solve our ethical discussions is that we just invent something even more scarier. So I think that's a really good point. We, I mean, we solve the ethical issues by making the ethical issues kind of disappear uh, because there's something else even scarier to worry <laughs> about. Uh, but we should not take this for having resolved any of the ethical issues. I mean, there's still ethical issues raised by all kinds of things in genetic and genomic research that have been with us for 30 years. And it's only in the last couple of years that we've seen the prospect of genome editing as worthy of ethical attention because it was finally sort of technically ready to go there. I should point out that I started publishing about the ethics of genetic enhancement in particular almost 20 years ago. So it's not as if people weren't 
contemplating that these technologies would be on the horizon before long. And sure enough, uh, CRISPR is one of those examples. So back in November of 2021, the Pew Research Center undertook a survey of the American public, or a sample, obviously, of the American public uh, to assess their attitudes toward artificial intelligence and human enhancement. So in talking about artificial intelligence, they also want to embed it within an ethical discussion about other kinds of technologies. And so the ones that they focus on here are uh, computer chip implants and gene editing. And so one of the examples they give is if new ways to modify a person's genes are being developed that could make it possible to change the DNA of embryos before a baby is born in order to greatly reduce a baby's risk of developing serious diseases or health conditions over their lifetime. That's the question as it was phrased. Do you think this would be a bad idea, a good idea for society, or you're not sure? And the U.S. respondents were split virtually down the middle. 30% thought it was a good idea for society, 30% thought it was a bad idea for society, and 39% were just not sure. And I think, therefore, this is a perfect example of something worthy of ethical analysis when you've literally got the public split down the middle. Well, how's that split down the middle? It's like divide into thirds, seems to me. Uh, well, split down the middle in terms of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Oh, and then, and then right. you've got another 40% that just aren't sure. And so there's something in here for everybody. <laughs> and just to sort of break down the data a little bit more, the public is split on whether they would use gene editing to greatly reduce their baby's risk of developing serious diseases or conditions. 49% would not want and 48% would want. So uh, again, <laughs> we've got this, this remarkable split. And I will point out that when we try to break down um, how demographically the opposition to or um, acceptance of these new technologies like gene editing, how the demographics break down, it turns out that more men than women think it's a good idea, but not a whole lot, uh, that with regard to being opposed to it, level of education does not appear to matter at all. Um, and the biggest discrepancy that we see has to do with those who are high, medium, or low in religious commitment. And so those high in religious commitment are 46% of the believers that it's a bad idea to genetic uh -huh. baby. So that, so there we, so that gives us some window into the ethical landscape of this question. It does. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll break that down even a bit more. So 46% no, 14% uh, yes, amongst those who are high in religious commitment. And for folks who are medium in religious commitment, it's split 29-29. And then for those who are low in religious commitment, only 20% believe it's a bad idea for society, whereas 43% uh, believe it's a good idea. And one of the ways in which the ethical issues associated with these kinds of technologies gets played out is in terms of whether it's a kind of playing God or meddling with nature or something like that. And it turns out that amongst those high in religious commitment, 
and you expectedly see that this idea of using gene editing to greatly reduce a baby's risk is meddling with nature and crosses a line we should not cross. 72% among those high in religious commitment felt that way versus only 26% who felt the opposite. And then uh, flipping it to the uh, those low in religious commitment, the Pew study found that only 36% think this is meddling with nature and crosses a line we shouldn't cross, while as 64% are comfortable with this idea that we're always trying to improve ourselves and this is no different from... Uh, so that was a lot of numbers, <laughs> given that I'm high. <laughs> but I think I got the general gist. A major reason religious people don't like tinkering with genes is because it's playing God. And right. similarly, people with low religious commitments have are much more comfortable with that. One thing that I find kind of funny about that is that, you know, if it's playing God, it's not playing a very good God. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right? Like, we don't know. We really don't. And this is a whole other aspect of this ethically that we can talk about. We don't know that much about the genome such that we should be playing with it. <laughs> you know, if there's a God, um, he or it or she certainly would be better at fiddling with the genome than we are. So, if it's, a, yeah, if it's playing God, it's playing like, you know, a Greek trickster god, right? <laughs> One of of the ones that enjoyed kind of fucking with humanity. It's not, it's not playing God. Exactly. Uh, That's, that's a very good point. Now you make this nice observation that we still don't know a whole lot about the genomes and therefore um, maybe we ought not to be fiddling around in there until we learn more. And that's certainly one of the sets of positions out there that we really need to focus on what potential, especially health-related risks, are associated with the use of this. And so we need to have some uh, some understanding of how these genetic modifications, especially if they're inheritable modifications, then so modifications to the germline, and I lost my train of thought there. So yeah, so these, these risk kinds of considerations uh, are definitely big ones that are out there. But there are also other kinds of ethical issues. And and one of them that's been raised by really excellent uh, Canadian philosopher and ethicist Françoise Bayliss in her book, Altered Inheritance, is that the human genome ought to be perceived as a community good rather than an individual good. Oh, yeah. Such like that. that we ought not to be intervening in the germline so that genetic modifications are inheritable, because these inheritable genetic modifications will then enter the pool of human genomes. And through breeding in future generations, they could become more widespread if they turn out to be environmentally advantageous. Well, clearly, yes, this comes from a Canadian because I don't think that thinking is going to fly. Well, exactly. It's actually a, the original notion is a French notion, uh, uh, patrimoine genétique, genetic patrimony. There's also been language about the sovereignty of the, of the genome. And, and you're right. This is the kind of language uh, that will fly in Canada and the European Union, but will be dead in arrival here in the United States. But at the very least, what Francoise is pushing in this is 
this idea that we ought not to limit the ethical considerations to a focus on risk and safety. Uh, we need uh, to be paying attention to ethical issues that are much broader than that, including uh, the future of the human genome. Yes, I agree, Francois. <laughs> there are some you know, fairly straightforward cases where genome editing makes perfect sense, uh, both in terms of its efficacy and in terms of its ethical warrant. Um, you know, you can imagine a situation where genetic intervention in uh, an adult could reverse or uh, otherwise alter the disease trajectory of something that that individual is, is uh, suffering from. And that's a good thing. And these are not going to be germline modifications. They're going to be somatic modifications. They're not going to be inheritable modifications. Right. And so in that case, and yeah, maybe you're going to have to explain germline because that does bring up the question, why are we treating genes as having this kind of special status, moral status? Um, Great question. Sometimes referred to as genetic exceptionalism. We make modifications and interventions on various parts of our body. All the time. Small, small and large. Why Why are do genes have kind of special, again, special ethical sta status, you say? What did you say? Exceptionalism? Yeah, genetic exceptionalism. And, and in this particular case, I think the answer for why we ought to be focusing on genetics is that we are talking about the prospect of not just genetic interventions that last your lifetime and that's it, versus genetic interventions that are heritable, that is, that are passed down to your offspring. That are, that are part of this germline. Right. So maybe you could uh, explain, define germline, and then explain how a modification gets in or out of that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a germline is distinct from the somatic line, and it's the, the population or the, the sequence of germ cells that is inheritable. So it's the population of cells that pass on their genetic material to their offspring. So there'll be some that won't get passed on and there'll be some that will. Right. And basically the germ cells are the egg, the sperm, and the fertilized egg or blastocyst. And some of the, so some of the genetic material, the germ cells is designed to be passed down genetically to offspring, and some of it is just to manage the body itself. Exactly. Uh, think of a, a medical intervention like surgery. You go in for surgery, you have your spleen removed. If your son uh, has some problem with his spleen, he'll have to have a splenectomy or surgery on his spleen because a surgical intervention is something that just happens in the somatic cells, in the in the the cells that don't form the germline that aren't going to be passed on to the next generation. Whereas a genetic intervention, an intervention targeting specifically the genes, can either be a somatic intervention, so correcting something in you, but if your kid has the same problem, your kid's going to have to have the same intervention. Right. Or a modification in the germline, so in an embryo, for instance, a modification that will be inheritable, a modification that this individual's offspring will also inherit. 
So it's possible to even be comfortable with the idea of genetic modification, but to say draw the line at it happening only within one generation, only within the body in which it's acting and not on future bodies. Exactly. So non-inheritable genetic modifications are considerably less ethically concerning to people. There's still all kinds of ethical challenges, including what research is necessary to get to the point that a, a genetic modification, starting back with the history of gene therapies, but now talking about, say, a, a CRISPR uh, genetic editing modification, the ethical issues associated with that are very challenging and uh, have nothing to do with inheritability. But if you add in the possibility of inheritability, then the ethical landscape gets a lot darker. Do we know? Do we know for sure, for sure, which ones are part of the germline and thus inheritable and which ones are only acting. A, a really great question, Stephanie. I mean, I'm asking a lot of really great questions. I feel like you said that to me like four times already. <laughs> well, you can edit it out. <laughs> no, I'm not going to edit it out. <laughs> Excellent. Because they're great questions. Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, my train of thought is going off the rails a little bit here. But You've got, should I ask my great question again? <laughs> no, I, I understand the question. The question was are we sure that we're making somatic modifications that aren't in fact going to have any effect on germ cells and therefore be heritable? Yes. Um, so in other words, can we be sure that a somatic intervention is just that, and that it doesn't have any germline implications? And the quick answer is no, we can't be sure of that. Aha. Because as you well know, what we're talking about when we talk about the, the genome, we're talking about a system and perturbations in one part of the system are going to reverberate in various kinds of ways. And so it's quite possible that a putative somatic intervention inadvertently affects something in the germline in the following generation. So we're back to the, the same issue that we don't really know what we're doing. Exactly. Should we be doing so? Did they, did the Pew ask them about that? Did they say, how do you feel about genetic interventions if it were the case that we don't really know? <laughs> no, they do not ask that. Because um, I think you might get a more uh, plurality, uniformity of response to that. Yeah. One. Yeah, absolutely. People be like, no. And stop asking us until you actually know what you're doing. <laughs> well, I'll give you one quick interesting tidbit about the attempt to govern genetic modification on an international or global scale. There has been uh, a series of workshops that have been led by and uh, include leading uh, luminaries in the ethical, legal, and societal aspects of genetic modification, as well as experts in genetic modification, uh, who have uh, gathered together numerous times in order to put forward recommendations for the development of this technology about which we do not know much. And the third of three international summits on human genome editing uh, took place earlier this year. And I, if I'm not mistaken, the previous event was in Hong Kong in 2018. And then before that, uh, there was one in DC in 2015. And the just for just for the sake of, of the ethical 
suspicions that people have about CRISPR-Cas9. At the 2015 meeting, there were recommendations that were made that effectively functioned as a kind of um, moratorium on human genome editing uh, with a focus on inheritable genetic modifications, but also somatic modifications. And it was in 2018 at the Hong Kong meeting where a Chinese researcher very excitedly demonstrated that he had used CRISPR-Cas9 in twin babies and was met with outrage and chagrin while he thought he had done the uh, or fulfilled the ethical prerequisites for doing this research and now was celebrating its success, uh, ethicists and legal scholars and genetic modification researchers uh, all were up in arms. This investigator actually ended up going, this researcher ended up going to prison for the work he did. And so at the 2018 meeting and at meetings thereafter, there's been a kind of change in discourse. I mean, and not just at these meetings, but elsewhere in the field, a change in discourse from, is this something we should do back in the early days to now that we're doing it, how can we do it best? How can we do it safely? How can we do it ethically? And so this idea that we're no longer interested in the big question about whether we should do this, all we're worried about now ethically is how we should do this. So that's the way the sort of global discourse has started to change about the ethics of of human genome editing over the last uh, eight or 10 years. And I think at the end of the day, that's a really important thing for us to remember that, you know, to put it in such simple terms, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And the fact that somebody is going to do it anyway, so I might as well do it too. Uh, Or this thought that, you know, if we don't do it, the Chinese will get there first. That kind of attitude is, is one attitude we can take. But another is to question whether we ought to be doing this at all in the first place. You know, what's the justification, both political, economic, social, ethical, for allowing this research to proceed? And that's a conversation that just really doesn't happen anymore. Once a new technology has been conceived, all the ethicists and all the pundits start to focus on how can we mitigate the introduction of this technology so that we get a greater balance of good outcomes over bad outcomes. But has there ever been a case where we had this moral ethical discussion about whether something that we could do, whether we should do it. Has it ever been the case where we actually decided that we should not do it and that we shut that technology down? So that's the question, right? Yeah, over the last 50 years, there have been debates about recombinant DNA technology and, um, and you know, everything that's followed upon that. And so there have been some attempts to ask the, is this something we should do question? There have been moratoria proposed, uh, although the moratoria are not permanent moratoria. They're temporary mor- moratoria until we revisit the question. So there's, there's been attempts and successful attempts at slowing things down. Exactly. By, by not funding them, by, you, you know, putting 
and maybe national or international research rules in places. But has there, so we've been successful in slowing things down, which you know has its warrant. Um, at the very least, allows us to invent something else in the meantime that is even scarier, for instance. Right. But has there, have we ever successfully abandoned technology because we determined that it was too ethically fraught? If it's happened, um, I'd love to know more. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think. What about nuclear energy? No. No. <laughs> And wind and solar, no. Yeah. I'm sure there's an obvious example that we're both missing and we'll realize it when we're so Well, there's Napster, but that was, <laughs> that, was, that was the commercial market, not the ethical market that it failed in. You know, that was like big, big business coming and shutting the people down. Right. Napster and file sharing technology. And that was, again, driven by legal concerns, protecting people's copyright, valuable copyright, rather than protecting their ethical lives or the lives of our con- ethical life of our country. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of one. I can't either. So, which is to suggest, you know, people moving pretty quickly onto how do we do this is probably better time spent because... You know, I think that's a, a really good point and And... Oh, I just asked Google, have humans ever said no to technology? And Google doesn't know. <laughs> what? In other words, all the links that are coming up are not about that exactly. So my ethical concern with the way this discussion, the larger discussion has happened, is that by continuing to ask people, are you okay with, I can't remember the exact question, genetically modifying an infant for them to, you know, the, for the baby to avoid disease? Right. So keeping asking that type of questions makes it seem that we know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and the only thing that's standing in our way is we making this decision as individual ethical beings and as, as an ethical community, whether or not we want to. But that's not what's going on at all. So just to keep asking those questions over and over again suggests that we know how to do this when really they should be asking questions like, we are currently trying to do this and we don't know we don't know what the risk is to the individual we don't know what the risk is to the community we don't know what the risk is to future generations mm-hmm. should we keep doing that that would be a more honest ethical question and then that would be also more helpful in kind of doing the ethical what do you i don't know what you would call steerage that you were talking about yeah i mean i think we want to do both of those things i think that it would be very interesting to sit down and try to design a survey with the kind or the kinds of questions that you have in mind. Let's do um, that. Let's do that as, as part of this episode. I was going to say, absolutely. Let's follow this up. Yeah. And let's put it in the show, show notes somehow and people can take our I survey. Can, and we can, can learn about each other. I'm not going to say that. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> hey, I do. So yeah, let's, uh, wow. I think I got pretty high and I think you got pretty high. I did. It was the forgetfulness kind of high though. Right. I, even to the larger purpose of us appearing high as we are, <laughs> I can't leave in all the pauses that have happened in this conversation. Oh my God, no, but you should leave in, or you should, you should mention in the show notes how many times you had to edit out long pauses. <laughs> how many pauses? Yeah, right. So I'll try and leave it enough so that people get the sense that we're having right. a very slow conversation here. Yeah, because they were not pauses for, for dramatic effect. No, <laughs> they were. 
trying to form complete sentences. Well, Stephanie, it looks like, once again, all we've done is scratch the very surface of the ethical landscape. Uh, but it's good to get our hands dirty. And what was, what are you, what are you, what's your carry away here? Or what do you want people to carry away from this dirty hand experience? What's one thing? One thing is, um, is to bear in mind that CRISPR is a really terrific tool with the potential for widespread usage in all sorts of domains outside of human genetic modification. So it's a bad idea to champion or condemn a technology without understanding its full scope of application. So CRISPR-Cas9 is something to be reckoned with. And with regard to human uh, genome modification, I know I have two points. The second (laughs) point is with regard to human genome modification, I want y'all to remember that uh, just because an intervention is a somatic intervention as distinct from an inheritable intervention, that doesn't mean that it's free of ethical issues. So, yeah, we can let that stand because first you want to just do a little public service announcement on, yeah. on CRISPR's behalf and then, and then you have the, the, the major or one of the... One takeaways. of the major things is, yeah, just because it's not inheritable doesn't mean it's you know, safe and ethically clean. So what I'm coming away with and what I think is, is something to think about on this issue, and this, comes, this has come up a lot in your work, so this is in part a shout out to you, is that in order to do make science, make sure my, science is good science and that it's ethical science, you have to also be asking questions about whether it's good science in terms of are they doing science well? Yeah. Is it making scientific sense? Is this an actual reality or is this this kind of science fiction of the future that, yeah. that, uh, that we're talking about? Great. That's a good takeaway. So knowing the science is important in order to make it grounded in reality, which is worthwhile doing. Absolutely. 100%. All right. Well, thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this <laughs> episode where we got Good and high. Oh, we did. Talk a little bit about genetic modification. Please leave us any feedback if you'd like to hear us talk about any particular topic. And we'll see you next time. Or no, we'll we'll talk with you next time. We'll talk at you next time. We'll talk at you next time.